Good morning, good morning. Oh man, it's uh, good to be here with you. Um, Justin is uh, gone, it's his anniversary weekend, uh, he and Natalie, so they're taking uh, the weekend off, and so you, you get me this morning, and um, we were talking, Justin and I, about this, uh, this Sunday, and uh, we just finished the uh, Life of David series, uh, wrapped that up last week, and then next week he's going to start into um, worship, a, a series on worship, and we're excited to, to start that journey. So we had this in between, and uh, he said, you know, uh, said this to me a few weeks ago, you know, we've never taught a book of the Bible on a Sunday morning, just straight up a book of the Bible. I said, okay, what are you thinking? He goes, let's do the letter Jude. I said, are you sure? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I think we, we ought to do Jude. And I said, all right, man, let's do it. And uh, so I'm excited to teach uh, the letter Jude. Um, and if you've never read a book of the Bible in your life, if you've never been able to check that off your bucket list, we're going to do that this morning. Uh, Jude is only one chapter, uh, roughly 30-ish uh, verses, a little more than 30 verses. And uh, so it's a simple read, but it's very dense. And, um, and so that's why a little bit of my hesitation and like, are you sure you want to do Jude? Uh, because there's all sorts of stuff in this letter that's strange to us. Stuff like Michael, the angel, having a debate with the devil about the body of Moses. And you're like, what is going on here? Um, but we're going to get into that. And I'm excited to do it because we're going to nerd out a little bit as we do when I'm up here. We get to nerd out. So uh, this is one of those uh sermons or messages, um, probably more like a Bible study, uh, um, that uh, you got to put your thinking cap on, okay? So this isn't one where we turn, out your, turn off your brains when you're in church. I want you to engage with me. And so we're going to have to think through this because we have to work through some stuff uh, to get through this letter. But by the end of it, you will be able to say, uh, I read a book of the Bible, and so if you've never done that, you'll get to check that off your bucket list, and it'll be awesome, and we'll all be happy. So um, we're going to go through that, and uh, I want to set the stage with you. I brought up a chair um, because we're going to be here for a while, so no, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, maybe. We'll see. Uh, no. Uh, we, we'll, I brought up a chair so I could sit and work through this, and, and really just, um, my goal isn't just to, to preach at you right? Um, my goal is just to have a conversation with you uh, about a letter that a guy named Jude wrote a long time ago and see what implications it may have on our lives today. So hopefully it's more like a, a conversation between family members. Um, some, some things that are going to be helpful when we, when we go through this to understand where I'm taking you. Um, to give you a, a, an idea here, uh, Jane and I, my wife Jane and I, we love cooking shows. How many are fans of cooking shows? A few of you, okay, almost everybody in the first service raised their hands, so, um, but uh, uh, more particularly, we love the show Top Chef. Anybody watch Top Chef? A couple of, okay, love Top Chef, big fans of it, and uh, we've been watching Top Chef for years, uh, and I remember one time we were watching the show, it's probably a few years back, one of the chefs began to talk about uh, a style of cooking that they were going to, to do for one of the meals, and uh, the style of cooking was deconstruction cooking, deconstruction, deconstruction cooking. And uh, basically what it is, is that you take a recipe um, and you break out the components of the recipe and you prepare those individual components of the recipe that makes the sum of the meal um, and you present it in a creative way to the person eating it. So as they consume it, it be, 
becomes the full meal that they were intended to have. Um, kind of a complex thing, an interesting thing, uh, but that always stood out to me. And this morning, I'd like to do a little deconstruction but not with food, we're going to do it with the text. Meaning we're going to break down components of the text individually so that when we pull it all together in the end, hopefully it has something meaningful to us that we can, we can walk out of here this morning. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to break down the text individually. Um, second thing that you need to know about what we're going to do this morning, and this one is, is more about how to read the Bible in general. And so th- this is one you put in your back pocket, you hold on to uh, as you're studying the Bible on your own. This, this statement here. The Bible was written uh, for us, but it was not written to us. Let me say that again. The Bible was written for us, which is to say that we can draw from it inspiration and, and ways that we can then know how to live out Christ following in our everyday lives, right? We can draw from it, but it wasn't written to us. Meaning these letters that we read were written to a group of people at a specific time in history, living in a culture and a context that is completely foreign to us in our Western American you know, culture. Um, it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And this is going to be really important for us to keep in the back of our brains when we read through Jude, because we're going to read things that are foreign to us. It sounds a little crazy, Um, but remember, Jude is writing to a group of people somewhere in the first mid-first century, um, living in a, a certain culture, in a certain context, with a certain understanding, with a certain situation that he's trying to address. He's writing to them, Right? Not writing to Joe Oliver in the 21st century living in America. Right? So we have to, we have to set those, those things aside and understand that, that uh, when we read this letter, he's writing to a certain group of people. This is a hard letter to read because it requires investigation. It didn't require investigation for those who received the letter. Uh, uh, you'll, re- you'll see that, that Jude assumes that they understand all the references he's giving. But for us, it requires investigation. We don't get the references. Um, Jude doesn't give us chapter and verses of the stories that he's telling us about, right? So we have to investigate, and we're going to do that this morning. Um, there's an implied knowledge that um, he believes that the readers have. And as we work together through this, um, I believe there's some things that we can draw from it that, that uh, I pray will be helpful for you as you leave this place this morning. So without further ado, Jude chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I'm writing to all of you who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Now, dear friends, I've been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. Who's Jude? Who is this guy? Well, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, those that maybe not Bible nerds that might surprise you to hear that Jesus had brothers and sisters, uh, but he did. In Mark chapter 6, uh, we're told the names of Jesus' half-brothers, and in that list is a name, Judah. 
Judah is the Hebrew name for the one that we have here, Jude. It's the same name that you have in verse 1. The most earliest transcripts of Jude has the name Judah. Um, and he calls himself a slave of Jesus uh, and a brother of James. Now, what's interesting is James, in your Bible, he's another guy that wrote a letter in your New Testament. Uh, James was also the half-brother of Jesus. And um, both of these men, say, they, don't, they don't just outright say, hey, we're, we're the, the half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, they don't put themselves on, on that level. Um, so they call themselves a slave to Jesus, which is to say that they, um, uh, they are servants to Jesus. They're, they're half-brother. Uh, but then Jude kind of takes it a step further. He's kind of giving us a little clue. He's like, yeah, but I'm, but I'm the brother of James, right? So he kind of throws that in there to help, help build context there. But um, So Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. Um, Jude, along with his other family members, were not followers of Jesus during his uh, time on earth. In John chapter 7, you have a story uh, about how his family didn't believe uh, what Jesus was teaching. In fact, they tried to get him to stop doing his ministry. Um, and so his family members weren't followers of, of him during his earthly ministry. But somewhere uh, between the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus' death and his resurrection, um, his family members come to faith. So Jude uh, and uh, James and his other brothers, they all begin to follow Jesus and, and, and believe in, in what he was there to do. Interesting story in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. You get this list of people, of those who were the followers of Jesus that are now collecting together. And in verse 14 in Acts chapter 1, the brothers of Jesus are mentioned in that list. So we know that at some point there was a trans transition in their faith and they began to follow their um, uh, half-brother knowing that he was uh, the son of God. Um, we know that he most likely embarked on, on missionary work, that he traveled a lot, um, and he probably took his wife uh, with him. Uh, a little side reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's making an argument about how he, ought to be, he and Barnabas ought to be supported when they go to visit towns and, and cities, and he makes an argument comparing. He says, well, hey, if Peter can take his wife when he comes to visit, and if the brothers of Jesus can take their wives... We also, Barnabas and I, ought to also be supported. So on some level, we know that he most likely was traveling, sharing the, the gospel, and, and taking his wife with him. Um, we're introduced to Jude's tension. So Jude starts out, he has a, he has a problem, right? He, he begins by saying, I wanted to write to you a letter about the salvation of Jesus. Like, I wanted to write the good things. I wanted to talk about the good things. But, um, unfortunately, I, I had to change my mind. I had to write to you something else entirely because there's a problem he has to address. Now, as we get into the heart of this letter, it's going to get harsh. It's going to be sharp. It's going to make us maybe even cringe a little bit at the way that Jude communicates to these people. But understand, there was a problem that Jude needed to address. Jude needed to address this. And so he had to be to the point, he had to be sharp to communicate the truth of what was happening in this early church. In verse 4, he says, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches. So the purpose of this letter is to address these people that have gotten into the church. And there are four things... There are four things that, that we're going to see pulled out of this. The four things are creed, conduct, character, 
and conversation. Creed, conduct, character, and conversation. You see, when our creed, a creed is your belief, your core tenet of what you believe, when your creed is corrupted, your conduct becomes corrupted. When your conduct is corrupted, your character becomes corrupted. And when your character is corrupted, your conversation becomes corrupted. So let's look at the first thing that Jude draws out, creed. Verse 4, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The two problems that Jude first identifies is that they believed in a sentimental God, which is to say that they are transforming God's uh, grace into immoral liberties. They believe that because God saved me, because under the grace of God, I can do whatever I want now. I'm free to live however I want because I'm forgiven. They believed in a sentimental God. They also believed in a syncretized Jesus. They believed in a syncretized Jesus, which means that they believed that Jesus was on par with any other religious teacher or or belief system. They were denying the one and only master, the singular master, the Lord Jesus. And we still face these same sentiments today, I believe. Professor N.T. Wright, the famous theologian, puts it like this, and I want to read it to you. I don't have it on the screen, but I want to read to you what he wrote, and and I think he summarizes it nicely. He says, Find people today who are saying that God loves everyone exactly as they are, so everyone must stay exactly as they are doing all the things they want to do because God is so full of generosity that obviously he wants them to do that. Find such people, and you've found those whom Jude is writing. He goes on to say, find people today who are saying that Jesus is one religious teacher among others, one way of salvation among others, that there might well be a variety of paths up the mountain to which Jesus' path is only one of many. Find such people, and you found those whom Jude is writing. Powerful words there. Because you see, for Christians, how you live is the most reliable indicator of what you believe. How you live is the most reliable indicator of what you actually believe. Jesus says in John chapter 14, If you love me, follow my teaching." They had a problem with their core of what they believed. And it, and it distorted everything else from there. We move into conduct, how they acted. And Jude gives us three references here. Now, again, this is what I'm talking about. This, the Bible's not written to us, it's written for us. This is where we have to investigate because Jude assumes that the audience knows the references he's talking about. They would have been steeped in Jewish literature and thus they, they would have just automatically been, been able to draw upon the references, the three references he makes. And some of them are obvious to us, and some of, us, some of them are not. The first one in verse 5, he says, So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, again, a hint that they, they knew what he was talking about, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. He's talking about Israel 
In Exodus chapter 32, the story where they come out of Egypt, and, and as they go to the, the base of Sinai, and Moses goes up the mountaintop, he's gone for 30 days. And during that time, they wonder, has God forgotten us? Is, has God abandoned us? And so they turn away, and they begin to, they create a golden calf, and they begin to worship it. And so that's the story in Exodus chapter 32. He goes on to say in verse 6, And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting the great day of judgment. Now this one's a little bit more odd for us. We wonder... Uh, where does that come from? And there are allusions to this in Genesis chapter 6, the, the, the really strange story of angels coming down to earth and sleeping with women and creating a, an off-breed of uh, what's called Nephilim. Um, kind of crazy, kind of strange, but he's riffing a little bit on that, Genesis 6, but, but also he's quoting from, from a writing called 1 Enoch, 1 Enoch chapter 6. More on 1 Enoch later. Pin that one aside. And then in verse 7, and do not forget Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the point where we go, oh, yeah, I've heard that story. And their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and, um, and a severe warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Here we have these three stories, and they're, and they're, they're uh, sharp, and they're edgy, and they're talking about God's judgment, and, and, and we don't like this, and this kind of rubs against us because we like the nice God. We like the, the gospel Jesus God, and, and we don't want to be confronted with the reality that God deals with sin. And so for Jude, he's not shying away from that. He's saying, look, Look at the conduct of these people. Look at the conduct of the Israelites in the wilderness and how they acted, the angels and how they acted. Um, look at the conduct. You see, when our creed is bad, when our belief, our core tenets of what we believe is bad, our conduct reflects it. Our actions reflect it. He moves on to character, and he begins to set the stage of addressing the character of people, right? We have creed, we have conduct, and we have character now. And he tells a little strange story. He goes on in verse 8, In the same way, these people who claim authority from the dreams live immoral lives, right? Their con conduct, they defy authority and scoff at supernatural beings, verse 9. But even Michael... One of the mightiest of angels did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but said simply, the Lord rebuke you. And then he, he breaks off a little bit to give a little, yeah, right? This, this took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. Right? And we all go, you remember that in the Bible, right? right? You might, anybody remember that story in the Bible? No? Because it's not there. It's not in your Bible. Okay? What's, what's Jude doing here? Jude is riffing off a pseudepigrapha book, which is to mean a book written by someone but not the actual author it claims to be, called The Assumption of Moses. Now, this writing, The Assumption of Moses, is all but lost to us. Some of it's been preserved in a text called The Testament of Moses. This is all intertestamental apocalyptic literature that uh, the Jews had and were very familiar with and used regularly. One Enoch, which we'll get to in a minute, 
is also one of those writings that Jude refers to. It is not in your Bibles. So here we have Jude talking about something that's not in our Bibles. And we have no way of knowing if Jude really thought that Michael had this dispute. But he's using this as an illustration, much like a contemporary preacher would use an illustration out of Lord of the Rings by Tolkien to make a point. This is what he's doing. He's drawing off of something that would have been familiar to them to make a much larger point. That is not to say that Jude thought that these works, these writings were, uh, uh, you know, inspired and, and biblical as, as a canon, but it is to say he was using these as illustrations to make points. We'll get into that a little bit more and why that's okay. Verse 10, he says, but these people scoff at things they don't understand. So there's something about understanding, something about the inside, like unthinking animals. They do whatever their instincts tell them. So what's going on inside of them, there's a problem. And so they bring about their own destruction, what sorrow awaits them. And then he gives us three more illustrations. Three more. Now, instead of a people group, you know, the people of Israel or the people of Sodom and Gomorrah or the angels, now he hones into specific people because he's talking about the character within a person. He starts with Cain. He says, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain who killed his brother, right? He didn't have to say, oh, and Cain's story is told in Genesis chapter, you know, Genesis chapter four, just so you know. Like, no, he assumes they know this. And Cain had a problem. His anger led him to kill his brother because uh, God wasn't satisfied with his offering and he kills his brother in anger. Interesting side note, if you continue the pathway of Cain, he leaves God's presence and creates and builds a city. And in that city, his descendant Lamech is risen up just a couple generations later. And Lamech is the first one to sing a song about murdering someone in his anger. It continues on. Cain had an issue in his heart with, with anger. Balaam, he says, like Balaam, they deceive people for money. This is talking about greed now. Balaam's an interesting story because in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, we're told that the king of Moab hires a, a non-Israelite prophet to prophesy against Israel so that the Moabites wouldn't be wiped out. And so they hire Balaam, and Balaam comes and says, yeah, I'll do it, and gives us, sets his price, and says, yeah, we'll pay you. So he comes in, and he begins to want to prophesy, and God stops him. He does this three times. He tries to prophesy against Israel, and, and God stops him. Finally, the king of Moab just gets frustrated and says, you know what, get out of here. This isn't working. He fires him, essentially, doesn't pay him, fires him, sends him on his way. The very next chapter, 26, is an interesting story where the Israelites are seduced by the Moabite women and they fall into sin, okay? Now, in Numbers chapter 30, we get a little commentary, a little background, because it's not inherently obvious that Balaam is associated with greed. But in Numbers chapter 30, you're told in a commentary that it was Balaam who went back to the king of Moab and said, hey, if you pay me, I'll tell you how to, how to take care of him. I'll tell you a little secret. And if you seduce their men, they're going to fall into sin. And so he actually gets paid. He's, in his greed, he betrays Israel in the end. So about greed in his heart. 
Then you have a story of a man named Korah. And this is told in Numbers 16. It says, and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. And again, if you're not steeped in Jewish literature, you go, Korah, what's this about? Okay, this is a story told in Numbers chapter 16 where Korah incites a rebellion against Aaron and Moses to try to overthrow them and take control. And God deals with them, but this is about power. Korah had a core character issue of his love and desire for power. You have character issues. And then he says, addressing this, the people that have corrupted character. Listen to the language that Jude begins to use. When these people eat with you in fellowship meals commemorating the Lord's love, which is an agape feast is what it was called, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without getting any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars doomed forever to the blackest darkness. And we go, dang, dude. Like he is laying it into them but he's serious. Those that have corrupted character are the kinds of people who lead to shame, darkness, and chaos. And he's warning them, don't be like that. Watch out for them. Then Jude closes this section by uh, reminding his readers that God will deal with this kind of people. In verse 14, he goes, Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's quoting from 1 Enoch 1.9. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Enoch, no, right? There's another one. Not going to happen. It's not in there. This is an intertestamental book. This is a writing that was super popular uh, with Jews and Christians, I might add. Obviously, Jude is quoting from it. Okay? Now, does this mean because he's quoting from a non-biblical source information that this is inspired? No. No. We have Paul in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, and in Titus 1.12, he quotes pagan poets. Paul is able to, to quote pagan poets in his writings to make a point that he's addressing. And that's okay. And it should be okay with us, right? Judah's going, hey, you're familiar with this? It's like this, and it's like this. And he's making analogies and comparisons to help the people understand the severity of what he's writing about. And that's okay. That's okay. So what does he believe? He believes that, like in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, which is in your Bibles, that's okay one to mark down, that God will deal with these people decisively and uh, pointedly. He's going to deal with this. And he's encouraging and he's telling that this type of stuff cannot go on because God will deal with it. When our character is corrupted, we find ourselves hurting the people around us. And for Jude, he's saying... God's not going to allow that. He'll deal with it. 
Lastly, we get into a component of these people, their conversation. In verse 16, these people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves, and they flatter others to get what they want. We're hearing discontent and boasting and flattery. A problem with is that the, the, their speech out of the outflow of the heart, right? Their character, the mouth speaks in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, we are told. Out of the outflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth speaks. And so we see this. These are people that are grumblers and complainers, right? Have you ever been around someone who, who complains and grumbles, right? You wonder, what's going on inside? Oh, I just can't stand this. Oh my gosh, how long is Joe going to be talking? Oh, no. Right? Like, he's saying that they're out, of, out of the outflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's something going on inside. Our speech is the reflection of what's in our hearts. Our character is built on how we act. How we act is a reflection of what we actually believe. I'll say that again. Our speech is a reflection of what's in our hearts, our character. Our character is built on how we act. And how we act is the reflection of what we actually believe. This is what Jude is warning against. So how do we respond to the question? Well, luckily, Jude doesn't end there. He goes on to say this in verse 17, but you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers who, uh, whose purpose in life was to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. And then he continues on in 20. But you, dear friends, again, the same way he started in 17, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. And this way you will keep yourself safe in God's love. The first thing he does in addressing how do we respond, he breaks it up into two parts, and it's an inward reflection. The first one is to remember. Remember what you were taught. Get your creed on solid foundation. What do you believe about Jesus? Because starting there will impact everything else. It says, get your creed right. Remember what you were told. This isn't new. This is stuff you were, they, they warned you against. And then secondly, another action is that we build each other up. It's a relational dynamic as, as we move together and praying in the spirit for God's wisdom. So there's a connection here of remembering your creed and then working with each other, building each other up in relationship. And as we do that, we will be able to deal with these problems. And he very quickly says this in 22, and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Okay, so, so understand, sometimes our faith wavers. It does. It does. If you've been a Christian for any number of years, there will come a point in your life where you go, well, God is, but... And Jude says, be, be merciful, be patient. Understand, Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to understand that Christianity doesn't simply begin upon conversion. A statement of faith, a belief in Jesus is. It actually is the ongoing movement of your life. It's an everyday, everyday action and decision that we move forward in our faith. 
And that requires us to, to think and to consider and to, and to work through the issues and questions. And Jude says, be merciful to those people. It's okay. Walk alongside them, right? If we're building each other up, like he encourages us to do in verse 20, right? A relational dynamic that you're not alone. Christianity is not an individual sport. It's a team effort. You can't do it alone. Nor should you. Nor should you have mercy on those who are working out their faith, struggling with it, trying to figure it out. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Again, we're talking about relational dynamic is the premise. And in a relational dynamic, there are going to be those who are in trouble, who, who the, by the conduct of their lives, are making decisions that, are, that it's going to bring harm and judgment on their lives. And encouragement is that we are to snatch them. Now here, again, the premise is through relationship. If you have relationship with people, you ought to be able to say, hey, I'm concerned. If I don't have a relationship with you, like, are you going to listen to me if I come and go, hey, I think you need to change this. You're going to be like, well, I don't know who you are. But the people that are closest, if we're in relationship with each other, there should be permission to hold each other accountable. And that's, that's the premise that he's talking about here. Snatch them, pull people, be accountable, right? This sin is no joke. Sin is no joke. Snatch them from the fire. Thirdly, show mercy to still others. Again, this is the second time mercy, right? For all the things that you just wrote, the sharp, critical, um, um, direct things that he says, he's ending it all in mercy, right? This doesn't mean we shout from the rooftops, you're sinners and you're horrible people. Like, probably the wrong way to handle stuff. That we ought to live through a posture of mercy and do so with great caution, hating the sin that contaminates their lives. And it's a warning. It's a warning. Sin is no joke, right? So as we're trying to encourage each other to build each other up in the faith, as we're trying to contend for the faith, as he starts the letter by saying... We need to be careful because sin is no joke. He ends it all in verse 24 with one of the best benedictions that you'll get in all of the New Testament. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and in beyond all time. Amen. And with that, we go, ah, you just read a book of the Bible. Right? That was easy. It was good. You can check that one off. So the question is, what do we learn from a letter like this? What are some of the takeaways, right? It's written for us. What's the thing I need to, to walk away with? I have a couple things. You may have your own, and that's what's great about the inspiration of Scripture. But maybe you're challenged in your own way this morning. But here's a couple things I want you to consider. Number one, God's grace demands a whole life response. The problem with these people that have gotten into the church is that their lives were not wholly committed. Their conduct, their conversation, their character, their creed was all jacked. You see, God's grace demands a whole life submitted humbly to the lordship 
of Jesus. We're called to submit all parts of our lives, not compartmentalizing to the, well, I'm like this at church, and I'm like this at work, and I'm like this with my kids, and I'm like this with my wife. I'm like, it's a whole life response, all of of who you are. And when we do that, the beautiful thing is that we become the kinds of people that are able to represent or image the kingdom of God to others when our life is wholly submitted to the lordship of Jesus. This is of vital importance because we can see from this letter and probably our observation through history would show us that when this goes wrong, it has terrible consequences. When our creed, our conduct, our character, and our conversations are wrong in the church, it destroys people's lives. And that's a tragedy. My take home this morning for you is the questions you must ask yourself. In reflection of this letter, what do you believe about Jesus? Where's your creed? Where's your doctor? What do you believe about Jesus? And then really, does your conduct reflect what you believe? That one may sting a little because I know sometimes my conduct doesn't reflect what I believe in Jesus. Is your character aligned with God's love of, to him and others? Does your conversation reflect that alignment? These are questions we wrestle with when, when the text is brought out to us and we have, to, we have to go, how am I going to respond? If you're here this morning and you've never submitted and surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus. I want to challenge and encourage you to give that a shot. Let his love and forgiveness and his grace and mercy change you and make you into the human being you were always meant to be. Living a life, but not just a life, a life more abundantly in the Lordship of Jesus here this morning and you've never submitted your life to Jesus, I'd like you to come and talk to me after the service. I'd like to pray with you. Help you take that next step. Well, let's take a moment as we leave this take home up on the screen. And I just want to pause and let us consider the implications of these areas in our lives and maybe what God may be calling us into to change and to grow. Jesus for your word for this letter that has the inspiration and the hand of God on that allows us to learn how we can better serve and follow you pray God that as we consider these elements in our lives God that you would challenge us to grow and to take a step forward with you God I pray that you remind us we're not alone we have a community a church a family to live life with. And I pray, God, that you would just reveal yourself to us all. 
we're going to move to a time of communion and let's all do this together because you know how loud it gets, right? The opening of the package. So I'm going to give you permission right now. Let's make the noise. It's okay to, to open them up. You're not going to be the awkward one that's trying to open it quietly but failing to do so. As I do every week, I'm like trying to be quiet in the back and it's super loud, crackly. All right, now that we got it open. We take communion so we can remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and the implications it has on our lives today. In the first part, Jesus took bread, he broke it, gave thanks, said, this is my body, it was broken for you, do this in remembrance of me, and I want you to think and consider the life of Jesus, how he lived, where he went, the people he talked to, and ultimately leading to his death, and ask the question, are we willing to follow in his footsteps? Take the bread. In the same way, he took a cup, poured his drink, and, and said, this is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we take this cup, would we remember the sacrifice and his death which allows us to have life and subsequently his resurrection which is allows us to live it out every day, gives us the power to do so. As we take the cup, would you remember those things? Jesus, you are good. We are thankful for all that you you lead us in and lead us to. We're thankful, God, that through your life, your death, your resurrection, God, we can learn and be a part of what you're doing on this earth, God, leading, guiding us into a life more abundantly, Lord. I thank you. We praise you. And we give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.